Hello and welcome to the Ecom Ops podcast. We believe that there is more than enough content focused on e-commerce marketing and not enough content celebrating the real heroes of e-commerce, those running the operation. Each week, we find and interview an e-commerce operations expert to share the secrets behind how some of this industry's most exciting businesses are run. I'm your host, Norbert Strappler, the CEO of SingSpider. Hello and welcome to another Ecom Ops podcast. Today I have Sean with me from uh, Audit, Chris, who is managing partner at GW Partners and founding partner at Southcall, Julian from JPNB's Consulting, and Paul, the CEO, founder of ecomattorneys.com. Welcome to the show. I have Sean with me from Audit, and he is a serial entrepreneur and performance branding expert behind the numerous DTC brands. Sean, how can you know how much this will influence the consumers who are visiting the website to, to have a better conversion rate? So what is the measurements you take and the experiments you do to have this understanding? So I think, honestly, what it comes down to is most of conversion rate, just like in retail or anywhere, is built on trust. And you can pick apart the numbers, but really the main thing that you need to do when you're trying to build Better conversion rate is build trust in the product, build trust in the brand. And that comes down to, in most cases, simple user experience tweaks, simple copywriting tweaks, and presenting customers that are new to your brand with information that says, hey, other people trust us, other people love this, and here's why. If you can do that properly, and to be honest, it makes our job easier, most brands don't. So it's really easy to go in and say, here's the things that, that have worked for everyone else, and they're probably going to work for you. It makes our job somewhat easier. And then from a UX standpoint, the other part that makes our job easy is most Shopify templates look beautiful, but they haven't been flex tested for conversion. They haven't been tested. They're just made to be nice looking e-com templates to draw customers in to buy into Shopify. That's great. In, in your opinion, what should every e-commerce business need to know about building a website? I think that what I was mentioning earlier is a really important one that a lot of brands miss. I think that they put their trust in large brands like like Shopify or any other provider and assume that what they're buying is best for them. And I think you got to kind of find that middle ground. I, coming from the background of building websites, I totally understand that it can get very expensive. So I totally understand why it's enticing to just get something off the shelf, whether it's a free template or a hundred dollar template and use it. My advice would just be to be wary of just blindly trusting those things. Always question, play with it, question it, test it, try new things. Don't be afraid to mess with it because in a lot of cases, those things, those things just aren't tested the way you think they are. And then I think the other thing I would say when building a website is just doing your best to let customers explain what makes you great, not your team. I think a lot of brands get stuck in that marketing writing vec, you know, vortex where it's the team is writing everything about what they love about the product or what their boss told them they should love about the product. They aren't even users of the product in most cases. The best people to sell your product are your other customers that are talking about its flaws and it's what it's great at. And those are the things that you should be pulling your copywriting from. I think in a lot of cases, brands just focus so much on really marketing heavy copywriting which in my opinion for small businesses is stupid. I think the just do it type of copywriting works for brands like Nike. It doesn't work for small D2C brands where they have no brand equity and they have no eyeballs and no reference point of what makes them great. So I think when you're launching a new brand or a new website, you really need to be articulate in how you explain what you're doing. Is a pretty looking website from a designer's perspective the one that will bring a high conversion rate or does that need a bit more? 
It's actually usually the opposite, to be honest. We were selling some engagements were million dollar websites over the course of 12 months and they look beautiful. But I can tell you firsthand that we never tested them. We never, they were never looked at for, okay, what's the conversion? Should we change this because of this? It was just, you go through, and that's why I got out of the agency world. You, we just went through every cycle of pitch the customer this. Customer says, I like this, I hate this. And you change it. And it's like, like what does the customer know? What effect that's going to have on UX or conversion? Or They don't they have no clue. They're just using their personal opinion. And so you end up with a lot of elements that just don't work. And so in a lot of cases, it's finding a balance, you know, there's, there's definitely certain positive conversion design trends that you can implement that look good, but there's some that don't, and you kind of got to find a balance to make sure that your brand doesn't look like it, or your website doesn't look like a circus. You know what I mean? I think that's one of the downsides of working with a more traditional CRO agency. In some cases, they look at your data and they say it either wins or it doesn't, and they don't give a shit what it looks like. This big neon sign on the home page header got more clicks, so that's the winner. And I'm like, no, this makes your brand, your aesthetic, you just, you're losing everyone. You know what I mean? Like as soon as I come, sure, it got more clicks, but maybe they were accidental, maybe because it's such a loud beacon of light. But I think you got to find that balance where short-term quick clicks aren't always the answer, right? If you're trying to build a long-term brand and not a Amazon reseller that you're going to close 12 months later, you got to build trust with your customer. You're trying to build long-term brand equity. And that means having a consistent aesthetic, building trust through your interface and your experience. And, and that usually means not doing stuff like that or abstract design ideas that are just there as conversion tactics. One of the primary things that drives conversion is site speed. It's not a sexy thing. And that caught a lot of customers just don't care about it because it's not sexy. You can't see it. And most of them are sitting in their office at WeWork and they're lightning fast internet. And they're like, oh, my site's fine. What are you talking about? But it, uh, it has a drastic effect on conversion and it's usually done from installing too many apps. That's usually the main issue. There's tons of others like image size, but for the most part, if you're buying a template off the shelf, it arrives into your inbox pretty fast. And then you go and screw it up is what happens. They don't send it to you all bloated. You, you bloated it. And so I think that's probably problem number one is Doing those types of things and installing apps and trying different things is totally fine, but you need to do the work after you're done with them to make sure that it's constantly being cleaned up and fixed because slowing your site down. What are good performance indicators when it comes to e-commerce websites? When you open them, when you see them, what are good indicators? I like to see a really clean line of like entry and exit. So what I mean by that is like, if you're driving the right ad traffic to the right page and your experience is set up right, it's like they click. They go through the exact experience you wanted them to, they go to here and then they're in cart, they checked out, they're done. Some brands want you to jump around, right? They want you to come on site and flip between products and end up adding a, I personally am like, let's drive direct traffic to what we're selling and get them out as fast as possible. But I think in terms of metrics, it's different for everyone. Certain products require more explanation. So one answer I would have is I want them to read more content, right? I want them to see more about the product before they buy it because there's a higher purchase intent, or there's a higher chance they're going to buy it if they understand it better. But that only makes sense for products that require more understanding, right? If I'm buying a white t-shirt, do I really want them on site long? I probably just want them to make sure they know which size they need and hit add to cart. I don't want them to understand every detail of my white t-shirt. So it, it really is different brand to brand. But I, I think the main thing that you want is just users taking the path that you thought they were going to take, right? You want to be mindful of that. If you set up your homepage or your product page or whatever in a way that was intentional, right? Like I want them to come here then scroll here, read this and click here, watch that, right? Like go on your screen recording tools or, and just make sure that's actually what's happening. What is more important, 
written content, imagery, or videos? Oof, that's a tough one. I, yeah. Most products benefit from a video, in my opinion. The struggle yeah. is that they are, if they're not built properly into the site and the video is not made properly, it can be very heavy, which affects site speed. I'm talking to Chris, who is managing partner at GW Partners and founding partner at Southcall and also co-founder of a 15 million e-commerce growth fund. Let's talk about some key factors. What are investors and acquirers look for in an e-commerce business? We could probably do an entire college class on this, but I'll try and keep it simple. High level, investors are buying the future. They're not buying the past. So the past informs the future, meaning I'm going to look at all the data to, to show me what, ha what has the company done, where has it come from, and what has traditionally been its performance. But investors are always looking to the future. They're always looking to where the company is going. So what they want to see is, A, do you have a view of where the company is going? As the business owner, do you have a strong view? What does that mean? Do you have a real plan that you are executing on that shows where the company is now and where it's going to be? And do you have real success stories to show as you are executing on that plan? That's part of seeing the past and then looking towards the future. So what does that mean? What does the business plan look like? It can come in a lot of different forms, but fundamentally it looks like this. One, do you have diversification within your sales channels? And not just like being able to list out, oh, well, you could do this, you could do that. No, really, I have thought about going into this channel and here's how I view this channel. So for instance, I wanna go into a new marketplace, but I don't wanna cannibalize my sales on my website. So I'm going to treat this particular channel as a acquisition channel, not a sales channel. So here are all the different activities that we are going to do and that we have done to try and drive awareness of our brand through this new marketplace to bring them back to our website. Because if we capture them on our website, we've got a subscription in place. We've got all the things to keep them very sticky and in our community where a marketplace that can be very difficult. So it's really thinking through that, even when it comes to say retail, right? When you're thinking about a retail strategy for your company, A, who are you? What's your position? Who are you to the consumer? That's a fundamental question you have to answer. And why are they going to care when they walk through? First off, why is the buyer going to care? Secondly, if the buyer cares, how are you going to get the consumer to care when they're walking and they're seeing all of this noise on the shelf? What's your external strategy and your and both internal strategy to drive what's called ROS, rate of sale or POS, point of sale. What's your strategy for all that? So investors care about these things. They're not just looking, and this is a bit of a flaw when you hear a lot of business brokers get on and talk about selling your company, they go right to the profitability. Yes, you need to be profitable, but if you don't have a plan to show this particular buyer what this thing can be in the next five years, three years, you effectively are just, you are, minimizing the value of your brand. You're minimizing the value mm -hmm. of your company because that's where you get massive multiple. And when you talk about that, what are the critical elements of designing an exit strategy for an e-commerce business? So you define the goals and then you're working backwards from that. And that those steps are all defined in terms of, okay, you're only on Amazon right now. That's a problem. We need to diversify you away from just one channel. You have channel risk. What does channel risk mean? It means that investors are going to look at you at blah, 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 blah. So we need to diversify. So let's start talking about concentric circles on where we can go next and how those particular channels can bring value to the company and the investors will look at you in a much different way. I'm giving you a little bit of a piece of how we think, but we always do an analysis phase, always, 
the analysis phase defines the goals, defines the steps, talks about typical SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, what needs to be done. And that's for us getting nitty gritty. That's usually a two to three month process because we're digging in. We're getting all of the data financially, all of the qualitative and quantitative metrics from all the acquisition channels. We're running business intelligence tools inside of your company to extrapolate all that information. And then we give the business owner the view of, okay, here's where you are right now. I'm pleased to talk to Julian from JPNB Consulting. How do you manage those challenges of finding the right stuff for companies? There's a lot of people, especially in the e-com niche, who, as I said, they want to test candidates. So they harvest candidates, wherever they're from, maybe direct approach, maybe job board, whatever. And then they send these people to a very dull-looking Google form with a lot of questions to answer, okay? And then they get like maybe one, the 1% best that they bring to an interview and stuff. I always say to these people, look, the people who are ready to jump through a very dull-looking Google Doc and go through a lot of questions, they're the people who don't have a job right now and are a bit desperate. The people who have a very good job right now and who are very a good performers, they're not going to want to go and do this. They're not going to want to go simply through a very dull-looking Google form. If you want to attract very good people, you need to invest a little bit of content, number one. So if you want to create a test to test people, I always add a video. I use type form, for example, and I have a video and I explain what is the purpose of the test? Why are we doing this test? At least it sends waves of respect to the candidate that's here. I'm asking some, a bit of your time to fill up a test, but this is why we're doing it. And once we're doing this, this is the next step so that they understand a little bit. In the same way, when you're sourcing candidates, I always try to add a video message of some sort so that they see my face, they see who I am, and I create a connection straight away. It's actually very similar to marketing. You wouldn't outreach to potential clients with, if you do, and you use a template message, you get a lot of rejection. And the very good clients are not going to be very interested in this because they know that works, right? So you need to, if you want to outreach to very good clients, the best thing, number one, is recommendation. It's the same for candidates. If you have a, a large pool of candidates, I've been recruiting for a number of years, so I have a large pool of candidates in the e-com industry. I can quickly send an email to a few people I know and stuff and get recommended and connections and stuff and get intros. That's the best way. The second best way is doing very good outreach, you know, like video, warm content, a little bit persistent as well, and selling the position, selling the organization. And in a lot of ways, for bootstrap business, selling the founder. People underestimate how important it is and, and candidates who want to progress in their career, they know that. A good boss, a good founder who is going to act as a mentor, help you develop your skills, help you develop into that specific skill sets, that's very important. And uh, too often, I think founders undersell themselves. You need to sell yourself as a mm -hmm. founder because a lot of people, if you've made eight, nine figures, whatever, they're going to look up to you, right? If you talk about e-commerce, what have you seen so far? What are the people that you need in your team if you're growing your e-commerce store? From what I have seen, there are two types of e-com founders. One that are very operational and that are one that are very marketing driven. So if you're marketing yeah. driven, your most important position is going to be your ops director. Someone who can manage your customer service, who can manage a lot of your marketing, I would say delivery like your SEO and the operational stuff, the day-to-day -day things. If you're a good marketer and you don't have that person to, to rely on, 
you're always having your hands dirty in the day-to-day business and you're being distracted from your zone of genius. And in the same way, if you're very good operational, but you're, you're struggling a bit with marketing, you need a very strong marketer in place with you. Sadly, you're going to pay a lot more for good marketers than you pay for a good operator. That's a market that's not, but that is true. But a very yeah, strong true. marketer will definitely skyrocket your business if that's an area where you're not the best. But yes, for, I think for probably, because 70% of, I think, very strong founders in e-commerce are very good marketer. So a strong ops guy who's going to manage your team, most of your delivery team, your customer service, your relationship with your transporter, logistics, all this stuff that is, if it's not ticking, catastrophe, right? You're getting bad reviews. You're always in your business. You don't sleep. It's terrible. That's a very important position. If you're at that stage and you want to grow, that position, like investing two, two, two and a half thousand, three thousand dollars a month into a very strong operator is very important. Is it important nowadays that the people are in the same city or country or it doesn't matter anymore and you can hire from additional countries in specific regions? Let's be honest, the talent is more widely available. You can hire from any country, so you can source in Eastern Europe, even though you're based in Canada, for example, you save a lot of money and you can access, I think, a very strong talent pool for the money you pay. However, it comes with its own challenges. Time zone can be difficult to manage sometimes. And also it's harder to manage people who work remotely as opposed to come in the office. And you get into, if you don't do remote properly, and if you, I know a lot of people do this, that's why I'm going to talk about it. You source people in Facebook groups and in this sort of ways and stuff. You can quickly get into a situation where you hire people who are dishonest, are going to use remote as a way of cheating their contract with you and also do even worse thing and stuff. So you've got to be a little bit careful with remote. It's not all dancing and, and fancy, you know, there's a limitation to each model. I certainly advocate remote, but for some people, it's just not the right choice. And I respect that as well. Yeah. I'm also interested a bit in your opinion about AI. Yeah. Will it replace jobs or how do you see the future trends in e-commerce building and managing teams, especially with AI involved and evolving nature of remote work and digital transformations combined with all these future trends? I, I see that in a very simple way. To me, AI is the tractor and the machine when they came up in agriculture. What happened with this? You look yeah. at the data from, I don't know, 1900, 19... 30 even, I think I saw that a farmer would feed around 15 to 16 people. And nowadays a farmer can feed around 100 people. That's what's going to happen. That's what's happening with AI, to be honest. It's an opportunity to me to make very good employee even more productive. The kind of job I think which are going to be eliminated are the mundane job, VA in some expect, in some respect. I think a lot of content writers as well who are just there to chuck t- typical SEO content and stuff. It's now, because it's interesting, there are a lot of people at the beginning of ChatGPT and stuff who said, oh, con- good content writers are gonna be out of job and stuff. And you're gonna be able to find people who are maybe very beginners based in cheaper regions to be able to create great content. In fact, it's the other way around. <laughs> it is these writers are gonna struggle to find job and you can now have a very great writer who can work part-time for you and create a huge amount of excellent content that you don't even have to touch or anything. That's more the way, you know, it's making very strong writers who are probably out of 
a budget for a lot of people affordable because our productivity has been has exploded simply. I'm talking to Paul, the CEO, founder of ecommerceernist.com. Paul, yeah. we're talking to a lot of e-commerce store owners and to SaaS companies. What are the most important things every e-commerce business should know when it comes to legal matters? Yeah, I mean, we start with the basics. We actually created a sort of a company called Seller Basics because we're so obsessed with it. You know, how to start your company and your trademark and doing it right. It's all important. There's so many characters out there that'll sell you just nonsense. And it's what we do, it's not expensive. I mean, we don't make a lot of money selling somebody LLCs or trademarks. It's not complicated, but people have this impression. I think that it costs thousands of thousands of dollars if you work with a law firm or a lawyer, and it's, it's really not, but it is for your benefits. And if you want your LLC limited liability company to protect you from liability, you should work with a lawyer. Don't just buy some legal zoom or some guru. Same with your trademarks. I can't say more than ever, the trademarks are so important, right? I mean, we do, as a law firm, we, we do a lot of mergers and acquisitions. So it's a fancy word for helping our clients exit their e-commerce businesses, selling them. So we did 2021, we did over a quarter billion for our clients in exit deals. So we do this a lot. And knowing the value of your assets and making sure your assets are well valued and, and properly established is key. Because if you don't have a good trademark, obviously that affects the value of your business overall. Similar with your copyrights, your intellectual property, your photos, but trademarks in particular, I think for newbies starting out, it's become more important because there's this, uh, for the Amazon side of the world, there's this notion that you don't need to wait for your trademark to get proved to start your business on Amazon, which is true, but all the more reason why you better be right. Because if you can't, because if you start on a trademark, if I have this crazy idea for the name of a company called Apple, and I go with Apple and I start selling Apple on Amazon for a month or two. And then I find out I can't get the trademark Apple. I've just spent all this money branding products, shipping them overseas, launching PPC and for nothing because you're not going to change. It's going to, it's going to die. You're going to be back to square one. But knowing that your trademark is going to pass is really important. Don't just file a trademark with trademark Zoom or whatever and hope and pray and build a business around it and then find out nine months later, you can't use it anymore, which yeah. we see that a lot. So. I think for starting out, and I think it's just in general, there's things we know about your business that you don't know. That typically, whether it's compliance with certain laws, FTC, FDA, which is, you know, Federal Trade Commission for the Drug Administration, whether it's state laws like California's uh, Prop 65 warning law. There's so many of these little things. It's important to work with a lawyer in e-commerce because these are those little things that can get you shut down. So little things that can come as a surprise. And it's our job to keep your surprises away from you. Generally, our philosophy too is also to keep people out of courtrooms. We don't think that small business owners do all the courtrooms. You know, we have a lot of debates with our clients about how would this turn out in court? And I said, well, I can give you the law professor's answer to that, which is X, Y, Z, whatever you think, you know, this is that. Is there any real common mistake in e-commerce business that you see frequently? From the legal side of things, it is it's just failure to understand your requirements, your obligations, uh, your laws, like compliance with the laws. These types of things will typically result in, if you're on Amazon, it can result in the loss of your ASIN product for sale. On the website, it can result in lawsuits. I can't tell you, just, you know, too much boilerplate. Too many people just thinking they can just copy and paste from somewhere else. And then it's like, oh, now you're getting sued because you didn't write good terms. Your terms suck because your product claims are this. So... Just a lot of carelessness. People do a really good job creating these products, these brands, they drive traffic, they generate sales, and then there's something stupid they didn't understand that they were supposed to do. Yeah. And now it's like, it's all worthless. You know what I mean? Like they made the money, but they can't sell it. 
And as somebody who deals with the business of selling businesses, like as, as a lawyer, not a broker, but just we help our clients go through this process. I'm always interested in helping my clients from the perspective, how do we build an asset here? How do we build something of value that you can sell? Because that's the game right now. That's right. the game. So that's the game. always the game. What are the most common reasons for legal disputes when you're an online seller and your clients are contacting you regarding a dispute? It's usually something with intellectual property. You didn't have it. You didn't know there was a patent. Was there a patent or trademark is too close to this trademark or something you're saying is wrong? It's just the same sort of kind of stuff. IP is always going to be. I think the most common issue, then followed by sort of safety compliance, just not knowing what your requirements are. That happens sometimes. So we have clients who they sell products for years and then they find out all of a sudden the platform is enforcing FDA rules and you can't sell it anymore. Now you need FDA clearance and you want it yesterday, but it takes a year, right? Sometimes we can help with that and make it faster, but overall it sucks, right? Wouldn't it be nice if you'd known that ahead of time you could have worked on it all this time instead of finding out the last minute that that's too late. But I think IP is always the biggest one. People are always yeah. trying to find clever ways to take out their competition and creating distinction with IP, which I encourage my clients to do. We think of where your product is going to be, how it's going to be purchased, who, your, who else is going to be looking at your competition, and try to think of ways to make your product stand out using intellectual property protections. I think it's, it's easy, cheap to do on the front end, and it can be very valuable. But I think that's, so it's a valuable tool to have good intellectual property such as copyrights, trademarks, as well as obviously patents as well, if possible. But yeah, and that typically is where we see most of the conflict is something like that. Somebody, you brushed on my patent, you're brushing on my, my trade dress, my trademark. And that's it for this episode of the Ecom Ops Podcast. If you enjoyed listening and would like us to find and interview more e-commerce operations experts, please search for Ecom Ops Podcast in your favorite podcast listening app and then subscribe, rate, and review. Until next time.